Hello, and welcome back to Mind Over Chatter, the Cambridge University podcast. I'm Nick. I'm James. And I'm Naomi. And together, we're inviting you to join us in our conversations with clever, curious people here in Cambridge. In this second series, we're talking about futures. And in this episode, we're asking the question, what is the future of reproduction? We're going to cover everything including egg freezing, from Cadbury's cream eggs to human eggs, from induced pluripotent stem cells to the maternal instincts of Darth Vader, and from demographic transition models to a veritable zoo of pokronyms. So, who are we talking to in this episode? Well, we talked to a demographer. I'm Alice Reed. I'm a demographer. That's somebody who studies the patterns and influences on fertility. That's births, mortality, that's deaths and migration. And I look at uh, these things over the long term. So one of the things I'm particularly interested in is why most people stopped having large families. And in the UK, this happened at the, at the end of the 19th century. A sociologist. Hello, I am Lucy and I am a research associate in the Reproductive Sociology Research Group in the Department of Sociology at Cambridge. Um, I'm mostly interested in the introduction of new reproductive technologies, such as egg freezing, which people use to have children later, or embryo selection to decide which embryos to implant into the womb. And I'm interested in how that changes our ideas about fertility, what it means to be fertile, and how people experience their fertility. And a developmental biologist. I suppose this leaves me. So I'm Thorsten Borowiak, um, the head of the laboratory for primate embryogenesis. And in my lab, we try to ask the question, how does an embryo form the most complex forms of life? And that includes humans from a very small cluster of cells. So in other words, um, what is the secret behind this self-organization? Um, I'll throw this first one over to Alice, but Lucy and Thorsten, you can feel free to chime in um, once we've heard a little from Alice first. Um, and the question is kind of a big one, but it's how has human reproduction changed in recent history? <clears throat> well, that sort of depends on what you mean by recent. Um, but I think it's really important to look at things in um a reasonably long term, and by, by that I mean the last couple of hundred years, um, because the biggest changes in, in human reproduction have really occurred um, just over a hundred years ago when people, um, people used to have uh, re- reasonably large families um, between four and, and six children uh, per woman um, were quite common in the 19th century in Europe, for example. And in Europe, towards the end of the 19th century, these uh, this family size really declined over the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century to about uh, two or fewer than two children per woman. And this is something called the demographic transition. And it's happened everywhere across the world. It's still happening in parts of the world, such as Africa. So it's an ongoing process, but it is does appear to be a universal process. Um, this, the remaining time in between then have seen a lot of fluctuations in fertility with the, with the baby boom and lowest low fertility uh, and low fertility now. So I think it's really important to put it into a long-term perspective like that. And little changes in, in the very recent past look much smaller when you look at the longer term. I, I wanted to ask Alice, so do you think this is more to do actually with, with, with time or recent as such, or does it more, does it more, is it more a statement about um, the affairs of a society. Uh, yes, it's about it's 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 about it, it, um, the affairs of society in a way. It's it's been linked to the stage of development, um, economic development, um, and uh, the way that that society is organised. 
um, but also, and really importantly, to do with ideas and about the acceptability of trying to control one's, one's uh, family, but also about things like opportunity costs for men and women, um, particularly for women, and um, the trade-offs between having children and other things. Yeah, like like education, I guess, is probably a big factor there, women's education. Yes, yes women's um, education and children's education. Lucy, do you, do you have anything to add there from a sociology point of view? Yes, well, my work looks at the more recent history rather than the, uh, the longer term that Alice pointed to. So um, I'm interested in new reproductive technologies that have emerged over the last couple of decades. And particularly, I think some really important changes have happened in the last decade. Um, and I focus primarily on a technology called egg freezing which has been around a little bit longer than a decade, but about one decade ago, the major bodies in reproductive medicine decided that egg freezing is no longer experimental. So it can be used um, by anyone or it can be offered by um, fertility clinics more broadly. And that has made egg freezing a much more popular technology. Um, so the numbers of women freezing their eggs is growing a lot every year. At the same time, it's a very small number compared to all the people using IVF or all the people having children um, uh, more broadly. But I think why it's important to think about anyway is that it is changing those ideas that Alice referred to. So it's really changing our ideas of what it means to be fertile, to what extent we can control our fertility when we are fertile, when we should worry about becoming infertile, how long we can continue to have children even if we cannot conceive by having sex or inseminating um, with sperm. And so uh, yeah, I think the significance of these new technologies is not only that people can use them, but also how we think about them and what kind of possibilities it opens up and how that changes our debates about um, what it means to be fertile. Uh, so yeah, that's that's one of the things that has changed in the last decade. So, so Lucy, thinking a little bit more about egg freezing, you mentioned it's becoming more popular, but with whom and why? <laughs> well... That, that's an interesting question. So egg freezing is becoming more popular in certain countries where it's allowed. So that's one thing. You can't freeze your eggs everywhere. So, uh, for example, in China, in France, I come from the Netherlands. Uh, there used to be restrictions there uh, up until 2011. But yeah, in, like in, in many countries, you're not allowed to freeze your eggs or you're only allowed to freeze your eggs under certain circumstances. And then in many other countries like uh, the US and also the UK, um, there's a lot more encouragement for women to freeze their eggs, for example, through fertility marketing or um, different clinics that really propose the idea that it's a good idea to freeze your eggs. So it kind of depends on your national context. And then, of course, not everybody's freezing their eggs. There's um, a certain group of women who tends to freeze their eggs. They tend to be women who are highly educated, have more income, um, can afford it because it's an expensive procedure. And also, uh, it tends to be women who don't have a partner. So about 85% of the women who freeze their eggs don't have a partner. It's often presented initially as a technology for women, for example, to focus on their career rather than uh, having children. But in fact, you see that it's mostly because women don't have a partner that they can start a relationship with and would like to do that with a partner and therefore they freeze their eggs so they still might have that opportunity in the future. Um, there's a lot of caveats around that but we can discuss those uh, further later. Lucy, I'm curious about this, can I ask a question? Um, so uh, is there a fraction of, of um, women also who um, then 
um, who have become then too old to go th through the pregnancy themselves and then choose to do this via foster mother? Is this something that's being done or, or not? You mean surrogacy or you mean fostering? Yes, yes, yes. So, sorry, Sur surrogacy, exactly. So what, what is typically, what, what the understanding is more broadly is that the main factor in fertility decline of women is the quality of eggs rather than their ability to get pregnant. So if women use the eggs of younger women, for example in egg donation, or if women use their own younger eggs that they frozen when they were younger, the pregnancy rates tend to be still quite high. They tend to correspond quite closely to the time of, uh, of the age of the eggs, as it were. So um, uh, the fertility decline isn't that much linked to the ability to get pregnant. There are more complications with pregnancy if you get older. Um, so it may be harder to give birth, you may get more um, problems during uh, the pregnancy itself. But the ability to get pregnant continues quite a bit longer than the ability to conceive with your own eggs. And so, um, and, and you see that now there's a lot of women who are having children later. And I want to add that it's mostly also men who are having children later. Men are on average three years older than women when they, uh, when they have a child. But um, women are obviously the ones who, who carry the child if they get pregnant. And so, um, yeah, we see that as, as this later reproduction is happening, there is also more interest in finding ways of still having a pregnancy or still conceiving a child or still raising a child, even if you find that it doesn't work out in the way in which uh, you maybe had imagined it could or that it doesn't work out without using technologies. So we're sort of starting to touch on this already, but just to bring like Alice back in here as a demographer, what, are there any likely demographic or societal impacts of this practice increasing in popularity? Uh, you mean of egg freezing? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, the thing that immediately I thought about was the equity issue um, in that, uh, and, and Lucy, you mentioned this, that it's, it's really only um, open to uh, Wealthier, wealthier women, or more likely to be open to wealthy women, and, and that's an implication rather than an influence on it. But it, it, um, the influence is that it's that it it will be only open to um, to wealthy women, and it's also something that you've got to think about when you're young and then put into operation when you're old. So it requires quite a lot of forethought because I think it's really linked to the to the postponing of fertility to older ages. Um, and this has been, in a way, you know, this is one of the trends of the late 20th century, is that women have been putting off having children um, later and later. And mostly this is because they want to establish a, um, a career first, uh, because there are far more opportunity costs uh, to having a, a child earlier when you're much more um, unsettled and insecure. And I think the some of the societal factors in this is to do with the development of gender equity and levels when when you have high levels of gender equity in institutions such as the workplace and education, which basically means that women have the same opportunities in education and the workplace, they want to go and take those. And if they don't have the same levels of gender equity in the home, then there's a mismatch. And, and what happens is they spend more time in, in education in the workplace and put off having children because it's just much more difficult to do that. And countries which have higher levels of um, 
similarity between those levels of gender equity tend to have actually higher fertility now than countries which have lower levels. So this is why one of the reasons perhaps why we see what lower, much lower fertility in uh, Spain and Italy, um, where there's uh, a much more a much stronger familial uh, responsibility for the family. So women are still supposed to stay at home and look look after children, whether where, whereas levels of childcare and so on are much are much better in uh, Nordic countries, for example. Can I just check? I've understood that real quick, and then we'll go back to James. So, so we're saying that where genders are more equal. Um, women tend to have more kids because they're getting more support from their partners at home so they don't have to maybe take so much time out of work and they feel they can still get the work opportunities and have more kids is that kind of it absolutely yes you've said it much much more concisely than i did (laughs) okay so am i right that we've basically been talking about two things so far how reproduction has changed over time and egg freezing is that correct Exactly. Alice was telling us how the average number of children per family has changed radically since the 19th century. At the time of the 1800s, families went from having four to six children to having only one to two. This period of demographic transition was occurring across the world. And I can only imagine it was accompanied by a huge reduction in parents' stress levels. I'm still dreaming of that nappy-changing AI. Demographers use something called demographic transition models, or DTMs, for those of you who collect acronyms, or pokronyms as I like to call them. Gotta catch them all! Anyway, demographers use DTMs as a way to understand historical trends in birth and death rates as a function of a region's economic development. Reproduction rates are often tied to the way a particular society is organised, its wealth, economic development, and how acceptable it is to control one's family size. As family planning became increasingly accepted throughout the 20th century, prospective parents could control when they had children and also how many they had. Sounds to me like this might be connected to all-round evolving perceptions of the place of women in society following the Second World War. Today, even more reproductive technologies are available to help people hoping to assist control and perhaps even extend their fertility. Lucy's work focuses on one of these technologies, egg freezing, and its potential for changing the way we think and feel about fertility and family planning in the future. And I'm guessing there's more involved than when I sneak a cream egg in amongst the frozen peas? (laughs) Yeah, you could say that. Egg freezing is a process whereby a portion of an adult female's eggs are removed from one of her ovaries, frozen, and then stored. At a later date decided by the patient, the eggs are defrosted or thawed, to use a technical word, fertilized, and then inserted back into the patient through a process known as in vitro fertilization, or IVF if you're busy collecting acronyms with us. You mean pokonyms. The process of egg freezing keeps eggs young, As Lucy mentioned, the primary reason why fertility decreases through a lifetime is because the quality of the eggs deteriorates over time. Egg freezing therefore provides a way to free those with ovaries from this ticking biological clock. However, egg freezing is not an option that is currently available to everyone. Only those who are wealthy enough, who live in an area where egg freezing is available and legal, and who are well-educated about their own fertility, are able to access the control that egg freezing provides. I mean, how wealthy is wealthy? Are we talking Elon Musk ticket to Mars kind of wealthy? Or more, it's time to fill my freezer with cream eggs kind of wealthy? (laughs) Somewhere between the two, I'd say. 
let me introduce the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority, aka HFEA, another acronym. Uh, poconym, you mean poconym. The UK used HFEA, an independent regulator. It was super effective at regulating fertility treatment and research using human embryos. Well, according to the HFEA, the average cost of having your eggs collected and frozen is £3,350, with medication costing an added £500 to £1,500. Storage costs are extra and tend to be between £125 and £350 per year. Then, thawing eggs and transferring them to the womb costs an average of £2,500. So the whole process for egg freezing and thawing costs around 7,000 to 8,000 pounds on average. Not to mention the physical and emotional costs of the whole thing, which doesn't even always result in a baby. I'm feeling emotionally exhausted just thinking about it. It's also a process that requires young women to think ahead and to have the money to do this in the first place, of course. Anyway, for all these reasons, egg freezing is therefore unlikely to add a significant number of babies to the population, at least in the near future. Also, while some women choose to freeze their eggs in order to focus on their careers, or to wait until they've found a partner with whom they want to have a child, egg freezing will only be able to provide this sort of freedom if there are similar levels of gender equity in both the workplace and the home. Yes, when things are unequal at home and in the workplace, women tend to postpone having children in order to take advantage of opportunities. For example, Alice told us that countries with higher levels of gender equality, both at home and at work, tend to have higher levels of fertility. Yay for gender equality! And so looking for ways to extend fertility is only half the story. For these reproductive technologies to make an impact on the future of reproduction, they must be paired with ongoing efforts to increase gender equality. We haven't heard much from Torsten yet. True, but before we do, we have for you a bespoke mini-course, Mind Over Chatter Biology of Reproduction 101, to cover some terminology which will pepper the rest of the conversation. Like Ainsley Harriet peppering an omelette on a ready steady cook. Well first we have gamete, the collective term for sex cells, as in sperm and egg cells. Gamete, of course, not to be confused with gammy knee, such as, oof, Naomi, my gammy knee is really killing me today. <laughs> And then we have two types of cell, haploid and diploid. A haploid is a cell with one set of chromosomes, such as gametes. A diploid is a cell with two sets of chromosomes, such as any other human cell, like a gut cell or a muscle cell. All of the cells in a human body, except gametes, have two copies of each chromosome, or a full set of genetic instructions for how to make a human being. I'm going to remember this by reminding myself that the haploids are pretty hapless without two sets of chromosomes. Entirely without hap, they are. <laughs> it's kind of amazing when you think about it. Even though every cell in your body, minus your sex cells, have all of the instructions to make a whole human being, each cell type still knows how to be the right cell type in the right place. So lung cells still know to be lungs, and brain cells still know to be brain cells. Well, another Cambridge researcher called John Gurdon actually won the Nobel Prize in 2012 for proving that every cell in the body has the full instructions to make a whole organism. He did this by cloning a frog using the DNA from a frog's intestine cell. Anyway, next we have oocyte, an immature egg cell that may mature through the process of ovulation. They're called oocytes because if you listen very carefully, you can hear them all going, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> no, you can't. 
Well, two haploid cells, two gametes, an egg, which was once an oocyte, and a sperm, eventually, if everything goes roughly according to plan, might develop into a baby made up of a mind-boggling number of mainly diploid cells. I want to turn to Torsten now. So, as I understand it, Torsten, your research involves looking at um, embryonic development of primates, and specifically the implantation phase. Yes, that's the stage where... The little ball of cells that may eventually become a baby attaches to the uterine lining or, or doesn't attach. Can you tell us a little bit about this research and why it's so important? As you say, so we sort of focus on the question how cells organize themselves. And it's sort of the, um, the, the mystery there is, right, how do you go from a loose ball of cells to these highly complex structures and how do you lay the foundation for... Um, development in the weeks to come. Um, so what we do is we follow um, primate development um, through parts of their journey and uh, we use various um, new and emerging methods on these cells. Um, one keyword maybe is um, single cell transcriptomics which effectively means that we can read the code, what the cell is exactly doing at the molecular level very precisely for each and every cell. And what we do in the lab in particular is we, we look at primate um, development because for obvious ethical reasons, we um, cannot study human implantation directly. So we try to establish the sort of the general primate framework and then work towards um, creating models for human development in vitro, um, which is research based on embryonic stem cells and around embryonic and extraembryonic stem cells. So how, how will your f- research influence possible fertility treatments in the future, if at all? Mm-hmm. Well, I think one key point there is... Um, the generation of induced pluripotent cells, um, so taking cells back in time, it's a technology that was established in 2006, um, and the Nobel Prize was awarded for this to Shinya Yamanaka, right? Um, so you take cells back in time, and then you can start afresh. So you can pretend to be an embryo again. So your skin cell can be an embryo again. Your fibroblast can be an embryo again, and you then. Um, can devise following the developmental pathways to lead these cells towards a particular fate. And one of these many fates, and we have all the options open there, um, there's about 250 different cell types, at at least in our bodies, um, are the the gametes. So egg or sperm. So it is possible to generate um, your own egg or sperm uh, from any cell of your body. Now, the, the wider implication of this is, is that this may, provide, this may present a way of um, helping patients who say cancer patients or, or to sort of treat infertility problems in the clinical setting. Um, on, a, on, a wider, on a wider scale, it, it may also, in the future, um, help same-sex couples to, to have the, their own offspring. 
So, for example, if, if I've understood correctly, it might be possible in the future for a man to produce an egg? Is that what I understood? Have I understood Ooh, that that's a, Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, it, 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 it is possible. So, it is not possible. This gets a bit technical now because the, mit <laughs> okay. the mitochondria will always have to be from the mother. Um, but see. it is. It, it should certainly be possible to take um, a donated egg, remove the nucleus, put um, a haploid um, sort of half the chromosome set into this cell, and then let it roll off. The the mitochondria would um, need to come from someone else. Uh, I think. I think we have. Sorry, please. Yes, exactly. Like the like the the three parent baby that we had very recently and very successfully um, um, to treat um, an inherited muscular dystrophy. I think sort of where the the fault is within the mitochondria because we need the mitochondria for our muscles um, a lot. So this is where um, the fault is noticed first. Um, and, and this was successfully treated by sort of getting this in from a third person. Can I, can I ask a question that I think scientists hate, hate answering, but this is for Torsten. How far in the future would this be that, you know, potentially you could use, you could have an egg that's partially genetically related to a, a father, basically? I think um, conceptually, certainly, it is there. Now, to make this clinically safe and, and even more downstream, you know, to make it accessible to people is, I, th I would judge, as a long way off. Um, um, I would not want to put a number on it, but um, the, um, just to give an example, just to give an example, the, um, so this has been, um, so the sort of the differentiation process from a male and a female embryonic stem cell down towards their gametes and fertilizing that into a healthy offspring has been achieved in the mouse in the last 10 years. Now, the, the, the problem is it's very, very inefficient. So there is a lot of work that still needs to be done. And if I may, I want to add one thing on why it is so inefficient and difficult. And it's so it's much easier to to make these um, to take to turn these early embryonic stem cells into something like um, heart cells or, or, or brain cells. And the reason it is so difficult to turn them into gametes is because our gametes are, are the most highly specialized cells that we have. So, for example, the egg is the biggest cell of the body. It is 0.1 millimeters and you can actually see it with the naked eye as it's a little speck, but you can see it. Equally, the sperm, as we know, right, a sperm is nothing but a swimming machine. It's like a little organism, so very highly specialized. And to get this degree of specialization is just non-trivial if you have to manually supply each cue at the right time. That's really interesting. So, I mean, uh, coming out of this 
world of biology and and uh, minute cells and thinking about whole people again and populations can we turn to alice and lucy i mean we touched a little bit before on how egg freezing is um, affecting demographics can you say anything about you know we're talking very hypothetically here about like things that we should be thinking about from a social science perspective if and when this technology is clinically safe okay um, well, there's there's a number of different things. So um, first, to go back to egg freezing and demographics. So egg freezing is still a very there's still a very small percentage of babies that are actually born through egg freezing. So you only have point, uh, 1.5% of cycles uh, of IVF cycles are for egg freezing. And then um, out of those cycles, only a small percentage of babies get born because so far only about 5% of the women have returned to use those eggs. And those that have returned to use the eggs tend to have uh, a success rate of around 18, 20%. So then you end up with a very small percentage of those eggs actually being used and those that are used a very small percentage turning into babies. So at a demographic level, um, egg freezing is not having a, a big effect at the moment. So can I just say that at a, at a demographic level as well, um, assisted reproductive technologies actually have quite a small effect on the number of children born too. Um, and they, you know, that the number of people undergoing fertility treatment is, is larger than the number of, of children that, that ensue. Um, and that's, that's actually still quite a, a small percentage of, of children. So, so it's not yet making a, a, a um, an impact on, or a very large impact on demography, although of course it's really important for individual women who go through, and couples who go through it. I think what, what is linked to that, what is part of that though, is that there is a large percentage of people who will have encountered the possibility of egg freezing or IVF, and who might have thought about, um, should I freeze my egg? Should I do it when I'm in my 20s, when I'm in my 30s, when I'm in my 40s? Um, how long can I expect to be fertile? And I think those questions are a lot more at the forefront of people's minds in a different way when they have the possibility of undergoing this treatment. And so I think that's where we come back to your question about um, the technologies that Thorsten was talking about, because um, one part is whether they are available or not. Um, the other part is that if they become available, how people will then think about their own fertility? How will they think about their own gender when they can um, possibly create different kinds of gametes with themselves? How will um, uh, people feel like they need to regulate it? What kinds of ideas need to be reconfirmed when uh, they can be changed with, with a technology like this? Um, I think it's important to emphasize that it's still a, a long way off, but at the same time, it's really important to already start having these discussions and thinking about like, how do we want these technologies to develop and who do we want to be part of that conversation? And how can we uh, do this scientific work in a way that is informed by uh, knowing a lot about the context in which that science is developed and the particular societies in which uh, those technologies would then um, play a role. And um, uh, and then we come back to some of the issues that come up with egg freezing as well, where we see, for example, when egg freezing was first introduced, there were a lot of concerns about um, aging. And will women have children when they're too old, when their normal reproductive years uh, no longer count? 
And the regulation of air freezing is often linked to ideas about when people feel like it is the best time for women to have children. And that's not only a biological question, but also a social question that people um, have strong ideas about what's too old, what's not too old. And of course, that's highly gendered. Um, it, the way in which people speak about when men can have children is not as um, emotionally charged and not as uh, culturally specific as the way in which people speak about when women should be allowed to undergo um, technologies that allow them to have, for example, later pregnancies. So those are some of the things that I'm quite interested in in, in, in those discussions. And I expect with uh, something like um, in vitro gametogenesis that Thorsten is talking about, um, that could be far more uh, far more complex as well. Uh, one last thing I want to say about that. The, the thing that Thorsten mentioned about using an egg in order to make uh, an egg out of uh, a man's body or out of male cells. It's very important when we introduce new technologies such as mitochondrial transfer for three parent babies or other technologies that require eggs, that we need to think about where do these eggs come from. And so it's very important to think about if this was more clinically implemented, we would need more young women to donate their eggs. And that comes with a whole set of issues as well about do you compensate these women financially or not? Is this an altruistic donation or not? Um, where do the eggs come from? Now that eggs can be frozen, you could transfer them from across the world. So would you outsource that egg donation or not? And so I think um, getting eggs out of a woman is a very intensive procedure that comes with its own financial and medical risks. So whenever we speak about using eggs, we have to keep in mind uh, what women are implicated in this. And this is currently in the, in the scientific context quite well regulated, but we need to keep that in mind when we think about scaling up these technologies. I, I, that made me think about the fact that, you know, these, these are invasive and they're difficult and their chances of success are, are currently still quite low. And do you ever worry, you know, both of you who, who are working at the sort of the cutting edge of, of these new technologies, that actually you're giving people, you're making people think that so, something's going to be possible when it's, when, you know, giving them false hope in a way. And, you know, young women may um, freeze their eggs or may look towards the, the future technologies thinking that actually this this will be, a very possible thing for them, whereas in fact the chances of success aren't aren't very likely. And I wonder whether that's it's it's fair to to put that sort of hope in in people's minds. And you know, actually, women in their forties, you know, have have been um, having children. You know, that they they they've all, they, some women have always been able to have children in, into their forties and, and even early fifties. It is a bit matter of chance, but you know, some women will be able to do that anyway when they're that age. I think I can maybe make a start on this. Um, um, well, I I have faith in technology, but I think one mustn't sort of rush things. So I think if you choose to um, to use a certain technology, it's best probably to to just. Um, incorporate in your vision what is possible at the moment and whatever else you get is a bonus. I think it would not be wise to sort of um, have um, to, to plan and schedule discoveries in the future and, and technologies to become available. Um, but um, so, um, but I think egg freezing is, uh, is, 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 is certainly, I think, a proven concept. Um, which um, 
which is a feasible undertaking for, for a woman, I would say. Yeah, yeah, um, about the question of false hope. I think um, that's an important uh, issue that comes up. So the question is, on the one hand, how are people encountering this technology? I think it's important to consider um, how people get information about their fertility and their fertility treatment options. And what we see now is that there is, on the one hand, um, we have kind of public health campaigns that tell people about uh, how fertility changes over time. But there's also um, a lot of fertility marketing by um, fertility groups or fertility companies that um, uh, encourage women to freeze their eggs with slogans such as you'll never be more fertile than you are today or um, with uh, really fancy campaigns where they offer free fertility testing which then gives information about what people's fertility is but um, can be framed as a way of oh you now have peak fertility so you should freeze your eggs um, to maintain that peak fertility or your fertility is decreased so you should uh, freeze your eggs very quickly before it's all gone. So um, there is a sense in which the information that is being shared about fertility can lead to um, people getting an indication for treatment or people becoming a patient um, when previously they wouldn't have been a patient. And so I think it's very important to look at how our um, treatment of fertility is changing from a reactive model in which people treat infertility when they find that they can't get pregnant and when they try to conceive, to a proactive model, a proactive fertility management model in which people are encouraged from a young age to test their fertility, to preserve their fertility, to monitor their fertility, um, which is in principle an interesting idea, but at the same time comes with its own risks, with new kinds of dependencies, and with a lot of um, uh, financial investment on the part of women as well as the companies involved, and that um, uh, and uh, yeah, and that's something that I that I'm uh, very interested in. I mean, one what we see, for example, is that um, in popular culture, egg freezing is really at the foreground when you have singers like Rita Ora at 26 freezing her eggs and and promoting it as a good option, or the Kardashians freezing their eggs on television, um, and those are examples of. Um, there being a message being sent out that it's an important thing to do, that it's an empowering and positive thing to do. And one example is that my um, students at MIT described that they were at a career fair where they could learn about internships in law or in um, or becoming a journalist or whatever they want to be. And next to that, there would be stands of, um, of egg freezing companies saying, if you want to do those things, you should freeze your eggs so that you don't um, have to <laughs> wow. uh, take time out to have children. So that's th there's a lot of developments around um, how egg freezing is presented to people. And there's a sense of the concern about infertility coming younger and younger into people's lives. And then the possibility of remaining fertile, staying longer and longer into people's lives as well. It's on, on sort of the keyword sort of, is, is this more like a backup option because i think that's what it what it, i think should be because if you i mean if you this is a non-trivial um procedure i think that which is pretty clear i think to most people so i think even if you take your egg from age um 26 if you like um it's probably a natural pregnancy if you are able to do so at 35 is probably by far better than um thawing the egg culturing it in vitro and there's a lot still to be optimized and um, dis discovered and studied the effect of all of this. Um, 
and 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 we know that um, development runs slower in vitro. We know that it's that only a small fraction. Um, it's about um, a third to a half of um, fertilized eggs reach the blastocyst stage. There's a lot of abnormalities going on. So you have this in vitro culture, and then you have the whole procedure of embryo transfer and things. So it's a, it's a, I think I would consider it more as a sort of as a, as, as a, as a backup option rather than a sort of mainstream treatment, right? Yeah, and that's where Alice's question comes in about whether this is false hope or not. Um, it, it really depends yeah. on, on what you're comparing it to. So the idea that this can preserve your fertility is a bit fraud because like you both mentioned, there's lower success rates than would be ideal and uh, it's no guarantee at all. And most women are told that when they freeze their eggs, but it depends on what you compare it to. So if you were to wait till an age at which it would be very unlikely you could get pregnant, it's still better to have a small chance than no chance at all. Um, then the question is, when should you freeze your eggs? And, and that's, that's a really difficult consideration because if you're younger, um, you might have better quality eggs, but there's less urgency. You don't know whether in five or 10 years what your life is going to be like and whether it would have been necessary to have done that at all. And so that's why some clinics in the Netherlands say, we don't freeze eggs for women under 30 because it would be unnecessary treatment because we don't, they don't know yet what their life is going to be like in the future. Okay, so we heard more from Torsten in that last section. Indeed we did. Torsten told us about the science behind novel reproduction technologies and where this science is likely to take us in the future. Torsten looks at the embryonic development of primates. In other words, he studies the development which takes place in the few weeks following fertilization, when the future primate fetus is just a collection of cells. He uses an uber-swanky technique called single-cell transcriptomics to investigate the processes that cause these cells to specialize in the early phases of pregnancy. This method examines the genes of individual cells, giving us an extremely fine-grained understanding of what is going on during pregnancy at the cellular level. Remember, each cell except the hapless gametes. Good callback. Each cell has a full set of instructions for how to make a human being, and Torsten's research is looking at how cells figure out very early on in primate development how to arrange themselves in the right order to make a baby. You know, head at one end, tail at the other. Torsten's biological research becomes relevant to Lucy and Alice when the cellular level information he collects helps us to develop new reproductive technologies. For example, in 2006, a technique called Induced pluripotent stem cells, or IPSCs, a rare mixed case proconym, was developed that could take any cell back in time to this embryonic stage of development. Just a quick shout out at this point, IPSCs were developed off the back of the work by John Gurdon mentioned earlier. Shinya Yamanaka actually won the Nobel Prize with John Gurdon in 2012. Their research goes hand in hand. Since the invention of IPSCs, researchers have been busy working out how to tell this now embryonic-like cell to become different specific types of cell, like neurons or skin cells or sperm and eggs are favorites. <laughs> the upshot of this extremely technical and sci-fi-esque technique is that we can, in theory, generate an egg or sperm from any cell in the human body. Which is where James asked whether a man could ever make an egg. Luke, 
I am your mother. <laughs> well, it turns out that this isn't quite possible. The egg contains extra information that cannot be generated by this process, but it does mean that the nucleus of an egg, which contains almost all of the genetic information, could theoretically be replaced by the genetic information from a cell that originally came from a man. And this is where we heard about three parent babies. Yes, this phrase also refers to children conceived using mitochondrial replacement technologies, MRTs, Ask Ketchum's favourite pokonym. MRTs were licensed in the UK in 2016 and can be used to help women with diseases caused by sick mitochondria, the bits of the cell that produce energy, to have healthy children. Here's how it works. An egg is taken from a healthy donor, the genetic information in the egg's nucleus is removed and then replaced with the patient's genetic information. Then this egg with the new genetic information in its nucleus goes through a process similar to IVF. Babies born as a result of MRTs were labeled three parent babies as technically they have genetic contributions from three adults, their mother, their father, and the tiny amount of genetic information in the egg's mitochondria, which came from the donor. So it's not exactly an even split of genetic information. No, not really. And before anyone gets too excited by the idea of creating eggs where the genetic information in the nucleus comes from a man, Torsten told us that this technology is a long way off from being safe and accessible to humans. If we'd even want to do it. Exactly. Torsten did tell us, however, that this was done successfully, generating functional gametes from embryonic stem cells that give rise to live offspring in mice within the last 10 years. But this was using sperm generated from male cells and a normal egg, or an egg generated from female cells and normal sperm. No one has generated sperm from female cells or eggs from male cells. And it is all very inefficient and difficult to do because gametes, sperm and eggs, are the most specialised cells we have. For example, the egg is the biggest human cell, big enough to be seen from space. Uh, that's not right. Oops, sorry, misread. The egg is the biggest human cell, big enough to be seen with the naked eye, and the sperm is a specialised swimming machine. So, like a mini Michael Phelps? Exactly! All of this makes it very difficult for scientists to work out how to coax stem cells to successfully turn into these very specialised cells. Also, Lucy and Alice warned us that even if creating eggs using male DNA becomes safe and accessible, it's unlikely to have a large demographic impact, as current reproductive technologies in this neck of the woods, such as egg freezing and IVF, sadly tend to have low success rates, around 20%. And as Nick remarked, this technology might raise important ethical questions, like, is this the direction we want to go in? Who should donate the eggs that are used in the process of creating an egg with a man's DNA in the nucleus? How should the women providing these eggs be compensated? Tricky stuff. Yeah, not to mention egg donation is a lot more complicated than sperm donation. No comment. For starters, egg donation is a very invasive process. It's basically the same as the early stages of IVF. And according to the HFEA, it involves medication to suppress your natural cycle, followed by hormones to boost the number of eggs your body would naturally produce in a single cycle, finally followed by collection of the eggs while under general anesthesia. The whole thing usually takes three to four weeks. Rather 
other than three to four seconds. Uh, I'm glad you said that, not me. So perhaps this technology, if it comes about, might have a more significant cultural impact. Our concepts of gender, fertility, and even parenthood might change radically. Who knows? Finally, Lucy told us that fertility treatment is already being presented as something requiring a proactive rather than a reactive approach. She gave the example of some companies aiming slogans at women like, you'll never be more fertile than you are today. As a result, some women who may not really need to seek fertility treatment end up considering egg freezing or perhaps other products that allow them to monitor their own fertility. Lucy also told us, and this I could hardly believe, that egg freezing companies pop up at career fairs, again sending the message to young women that they need to take a proactive approach to fertility management in order to have successful careers and have children. Unfortunately, egg freezing is no guarantee that these women will be able to have biological children later in life. And that's because, as we said before, the success rates for procedures like IVF are sadly pretty low. Can I, can I jump in here really quick? Um, so I think like we're talking about all the sort of factors that young, I mean, I'm a young woman, I guess youngish. So we're talking about all the factors that young women like me or not like me are having to weigh up in terms of thinking about how and when to have kids. Um, and it's really complicated. Like there's a lot of stuff going on here. So I wonder if we can um, maybe get Alice back in the conversation and talk a little bit, you know, you mentioned at the start how family size has is, is decreased in the UK over the last 200 years. Women are having fewer children. One of the factors has to do with equality in the home. But can you tell us a little bit more about other factors that, that influence, not necessarily to do with egg freezing, but the decision to, to procreate basically, if it is indeed a decision stuff you know for people yeah and it and it is I think most of these changes in fertility are about decisions and you know first of all um, before when fertility was high during that first fertility decline it was about the decision to try to stop having a child uh, to try to prevent the next birth and before fertility the fertility decline it's felt it's it's widely accepted that people didn't really do anything to stop births within marriage. They might have done so outside marriage, but it wasn't acceptable to try to stop births within marriage. And so people just had as many children as as came along, um, by and large. And then during the fertility decline, it was... um, Some people have suggested it's because mainly because of the sort of the economic forces, but... In a way, having children has always been expensive. It's always been more expensive than, than the benefits that you get from children, whether or not they brought in income or provide old age security or whatever. So um, it was felt it was more about the acceptability um, and, the, and the fact that new ideas about the acceptability of fertility control matched up with um, the increasing costs of children in terms of, of uh, longer education and so on. It's not, um, while women's education has been really strongly linked to declining fertility across the globe, um, in Western Europe, when fertility declined, actually the opportunities for women to work as paid work outside the home were actually declining at that time. So, um, so we can't directly attribute it to women's education, although, uh, as an opportunity cost, although more educated women were more likely to have smaller families and that's more likely to do with um, a a different outlook I think and um, 
a different perception of what they wanted to provide for, for their children in terms of education and a, and a good start in life. Is there any, I wanted to ask Torsten, is there any sort of science that people should take into account when making this decision? So anything from sort of climate change to, I've heard a lot about this magic number 35, you know, like you're sort of fertile until 35 and then after that it's kind of, you know, a bit more chancy. No, what I would say on this is that it depends very much on the individual. Um, I think 35, is a possible I mean everybody needs to make their own decisions is what I would say about it um, we know that there is a, a steady um, increase on um, on the population basis with regards to compl- pregnancy complications and um, chromosomal abnormalities um, which indeed has to do with the age of the of the egg um, at the time of fertilization, and I think this is where what Lucy said earlier, where um, the the whole concept of egg preservation um, comes in. Can I can I go back to Alice at this point? So I'm interested in this, you know, this decline in family size. Is that is that a one-way street? You know, is there is there any way in which that changes? Could that change in the future? Could the context for some of these decisions about how and when to have children and how many children, could that ever change in the other direction? Well, it has, of course. It changed during the baby boom. So we saw a, um, a, a real low point in fertility in the 1930s. um, when fertility got down below replacement level, and replacement level is where women have enough children um, to survive to childbearing age themselves. So it's it's usually just a little over two children per woman, um, basically because women, you know, have one, uh, you need two children in in order to produce one one other, and a little bit more because some children die and some children then don't, don't reproduce themselves. So fertility got very low, um, in in most of most of Western Europe at, at that point in the 1920s and 1930s, but then the baby and everyone thought, okay, this is this is the end of the planet. This is you know this is um, this is going to be terrible. Fertility is dropping. Populations are going to decline. And then the baby boom came along, and and they were really confused because they thought it was a one way um, uh, route. Um, but uh, and but the baby boom was only temporary. Um, and now we're, we've been, we've had very low fertility. Sorry, Alice, when, when was it? Oh, exactly. sorry, the baby boom. The, yeah, baby yeah. boom was, it actually picked off during the Second World War and um, and then uh, really increased, so, so fertility really increased towards the end of the Second World War and in the 1950s and 1960s. And the exact timing varied a little bit depending on what country you're in, but basically this period of the 50s and 60s was a period of really high fertility, really early marriage, um, and um, and more people got married than ever before, um, and they had children earlier than ever before, and they had slightly more children than they had been having in the 1920s and 30s, and this led to a really big boom of children. It was partly about the timing of children uh, of childbearing, because some people had children early. Uh, the, the, the part of the baby boom was older women who had delayed fertility in the in the Second World War having catching up and younger women having children early. Um, so 
there's a sort of a timing issue and a sort of, but also a, a volume issue about the number of children that people had. So one of the points here is that we can have, we can see big fluctuations in fertility over time, in the number of births over time, which are the product of um, influences which happen at particular times. But over a woman's life, there's much less variation if we measure her fertility in terms of uh, what we call cohort fertility. So usually we, we, uh, it's easy to measure fertility at one particular point in time, and we can do that for very recent times because we look at all the births which are born according to the age of the woman. But it takes a long time to get fertility measures um, according to a cohort, according to each particular woman, because we have to wait for her to stop. We have to wait for those women to stop, uh, to reach the end of their childbearing lives. So that means that we only get cohort fertility um, actually quite a long time after those children have actually been born. So when we do look at cohort fertility, we do see an increase during the baby boom, but it's not nearly as big as the the, the the increase in the numbers of births. Oh yeah, no, I also wanted to do a quick follow-up about um, what Naomi and Alice just said um, in terms of the, the groups of women that the egg freezing research focuses on. And there is um, a lot of uncertainty around when to have children and a lot of concern also to do with broader social factors that play a role there, such as uh, you know having longer education, um, dealing with an, a very expensive housing market, uh, having less financial stability, more short-term contracts. Um, what we see now, a lot of uh, uncertainty in relation to the pandemic for people who, who were maybe considering having children at the moment. Uh, Brexit playing a role in uncertainties around that. Of course, also climate change and futures um, uh, there. Uh, so there's a lot of precarity in people's lives, a lot of social precarity, and that often plays a role in, in how people uh, explain that they freeze their eggs instead of having children or that they do have children but they felt a lot of uncertainty about it or they don't know how to um, uh, necessarily uh, plan when to have children or even plan when to be fertile, which, uh, an, which is an opportunity that egg freezing introduces. So um, I think that's important to keep in mind that this is not just a personal decisions but that there are many, many social factors that make it a lot harder for people to um, decide when they are ready or if they even want to have children at all. And this is why fertility is so low, one of the reasons why we've seen low fertility for, for, for a while and why fertility is declining even in the Nordic countries at the moment is because of this uncertainty. Yeah. Um, and it is generally accepted that we're unlikely to go back to high fertility like we saw in the baby boom. Alice, can I, ask, can I quickly ask what, what is the level at the moment? In where? In, um, say, in children per, per woman? Um, in children per woman, so it's a, it, well, in the UK, it's about 1.7 uh, 1. children 7. per woman. But that, of course, is, is made up of, by taking the fertility of each, each age group of women and adding together as if a woman now would go through each of those ages with those um, levels at, you know, um, at each successive time. There are countries yes, which yeah. have fertility as low as 1.1 or 1.3. Um, in a place oh, yeah, like yeah. Singapore, um, South Korea, um, I'm, I can't remember exactly which, what countries have particularly low fertility at the moment. I think but Japan also has a lower... Japan, yes, very low fertility. China, um, but also places like Spain and Italy have very low fertility. That may recover, but it may not. 
Can I ask a quick question here? We haven't really kind of touched upon changing family and partnership structures. I mean, we mentioned briefly, for example, same-sex couples and you know the the effect that some of these reproductive technologies might have for them and their ability to have children. I just wonder if anybody kind of wants to comment on where we are with that now and then also looking into the future. So for some of these kind of, let's say, historically non-traditional families. So can I say that um, people often think about, think about people, children, worry about children being brought up in, in non-traditional families. And, you know, sometimes we get um, particular pe- politicians of particular, you know, flavours um, having, you know, being, being very worried about, about this. Um, but actually, the number of children born into, or the proportion of children born into, born to cohabiting couples, has changed very little um, over the past, um, you know, fifty or so years. Um, there, because while many more children are born to um, unmarried people, most of those people are in cohabiting unions, uh, and and you know, are registered. And those children, most of those are registered. At the, their parents are registered at the same address, which is now uh, recorded. And while many, while there are, of course, lots of families who break down afterwards, in fact, the, the proportions of children growing up or the proportions of children living in um, single parent families is actually not too different than it was in the 19th century. Um, and that's because many of the families, which were single parent families in the 19th century, arrived that way because of the death of one parent or another. So there were actually more single single father families in the 19th century. And arguably, it's actually better to be brought up in a single parent family where that single parent family has happened by choice because it wasn't working together. So, you know, single parent families which have ended up as single parent families because of um, marital breakdown, although that's really sad, that's a, that's a better outcome because that's choosing the right families to, to split up, as it were, because they're the, they were the young families that weren't working well together. Whereas in the past, um, single parent families were created rather randomly by, um, by one, one parent dying. And that could have hit many happy families as well as some unhappy families as well. Uh, I mean, Torsten and Lucy, do you want to add anything, maybe particularly for essentially families who it would have been impossible for them to have children before something like IVF or surrogacy. I mean, of course, adoption might have been a route, but it wasn't necessarily socially acceptable and, and might still not be in some places in the world. Yeah, definitely. I think in our in our research group in Reprosoc, we do a lot of work on queer reproduction, on different ways in which um, people can conceive and, and have children or uh, engage with their fertility um, regardless of who their partner is or um, if they have a partner of a particular uh, gender. So um, also look at the research of the Centre for Family Research. So they look at um, more parenting and the, the well-being of children in different family forms. They've done a lot of great research. And we look more at the, at the conception and the, and the earlier stage of that. So for example, my colleague uh, Robert Pralat has looked at um, how young queer people imagine their reproductive futures and has really um, seen how, uh, how young queer people do imagine uh, possibilities of having children um, uh, in the future, uh, also if they are in a same-sex relationship, looking at different ways of conceiving. Um, he has also done some research on uh, HIV-positive gay men who were... So what, what was the outcome, if I may ask? Because I'm curious. 
about the the young people well i mean obviously there's a there's a large variety yes. of uh, so what are what are the sort of what are the sort of um predominant views or how people view to I think um, a, a lot of his research pointed to that people, that young queer people do imagine uh, reproductive futures and do see themselves as having uh, opportunities of becoming a parent and not being um, curtailed by the fact that they have a partner who's, who's same sex and that that's something that's changed in the, in the last couple of decades. One other study that he's done is more about uh, HIV positive gay men who previously thought that they couldn't conceive because of their HIV status, but now with new medications do have the possibility of conceiving without passing on um, the infection. And then we have another member of our group, um, uh, Martin Smitana, looks at uh, gay men having children through surrogacy, um, both in the UK and in the US and uh, is looking at uh, their pathways to parenthood and their considerations and uh, who they choose as egg donors, who they choose as uh, surrogate parents and so on. And then in relation to my own work on, on egg freezing and egg donation, um, there's also it, it also plays a role in, uh, for example, uh, lesbian couples or same-sex female couples who would like to both play a part in the uh, reproduction of a child, for example, by one donating the egg and the other one gestating the, the child. So it opens up new ways of um, people being involved in a, either genetic or gestational way in the uh, creation of, of children. I suppose the um, surrogacy question is also one that needs careful consideration, right, with regards to um, to prevent exploitation, right? Yes, yes. So that's at the heart of of my uh, uh, my colleague Martin Smitana's research, who looks at both issues of reproductive justice uh, of all the parties involved, as well as uh, reproductive equity in relation to people. Um, having the opportunity of accessing these technologies. And sometimes those, those things may conflict. So how do you ensure that people have access to technologies and have reproductive autonomy to create the families that they long for, but at the same time, make sure that everybody who is involved does not get uh, exploited or is um, in a situation in which they have uh, negative consequences for their involvement in these uh, in these decisions and that's a very very difficult consideration in which um, the, the part many parties are themselves um, uh, carefully considering so what we often look at is how the people who are navigating these new reproductive possibilities how they conceive of these options and the kind of social theories that they create when they consider uh, one pathway or another pathway towards becoming children uh, towards having children rather than becoming them. We've just got a final question for each of you. Um, and we're asking you to think about what the most exciting thing you think might happen uh, to humankind in the future. And you can pick your time scale. I know, what a question. Uh, you can pick your time scale. But the whole series is about the future and we're looking ahead. And with this particular episode's focus on reproduction, although it doesn't have to be about reproduction, we're kind of curious what you think would be most exciting about, um, uh, about the future which faces us. Being a very basic scientist at heart, um, um, I would maybe like to go very far ahead. In the context of this conversation, you know, um, having um, two sexes is just one of the many options that are there on the on the table and evolution has taught us that there are many many ways of ensuring successful reproduction and that doesn't necessarily have to be sexual 
um, reproduction. So for example, turtles regulate the outcome of the sex of the offspring through temperature. We have lots of examples in, in, in lower animals, like for example, insects um, of, of, of clonal of, um, regeneration. So there's lots of different options there. Whereas there's presumably no evidence that if a couple try to conceive in a sauna or in an igloo, that um, that will affect the, the sex of their child. Um, I think one needs to try this. <laughs> in terms of the future, I, mean, I think I'm going to look in, in terms of the, the, the close future. And I think one of the things about, about COVID has been that actually it's changed people's experiences of um, looking after their children. And some of these things have been bad for women. We know that women have, have shouldered the burden of, of that childcare and the homeschooling and so on, and, and their, their careers have paid a price. But it has mean, meant that men have been much more involved than they were. They might not have done their fair share, but they have done more. And I think there's hope in terms of this. Um, I mean, I do hope that, that women, women will uh, overcome the, the, you know, the, the detriment that COVID has done. But I think there's hope that men might become more involved and that this may well lead to more gender equity in the home in all sorts of places. And this can only be good for children and parents and for the sorts of um, uh, the, the, the family lives into which children will be born. And I think that's got to be um, a positive. One of the things that are happening in the fertility sector is that there is a lot of concentration of power. Um, and so that maybe through bigger fertility groups or large investments, um, uh, there's a lot of large companies involved in, in fertility. And that has its own consequences that we can talk about another time. But at the same time, in a, in a, in a sort of counterfact to that, in, in counter, counterbalancing that, I think there's also really exciting new initiatives that uh, are made possible through online platforms and um, uh through, having, through living in a more connected world, uh, in which people can get um, uh, different ways of navigating their reproductive choices. And I'm thinking particularly about organizations like Women on Web that um, share, uh, that give people the opportunity to access uh, safe abortions through abortion pills anywhere in the world, regardless of whether it's legal or not, um, by ordering abortion pills online and having online consultations. And so I think that's one example of how um, online telemedicine can create a more equitable uh, situation and a, and a safer um, uh, world in relation to reproductive justice. And so I, I feel positive in that respect that there will be ways in which people can um, harness technologies and um, use online platforms in order to uh, also resist some of the um, tendencies that are happening in the fertility sector by taking more technologies in hand, by being more um, uh, radical and being um, uh, more in control, in control, not of just using the technologies, but also themselves distributing the technologies and um, accessing them wherever they are. I like how we ended up by imagining what future families might look like when these novel reproductive technologies increase acceptability. Yeah, me too. It was also interesting that, that this caused us to delve back into the past again. Alice told us that the first element of historical declining fertility was people deciding to stop having children. 
It might seem odd to some of us now, but limiting family size within marriages was once a new concept that had to slowly gain acceptance. This is often linked to more education for women and girls. We also heard that fertility dropped in Western Europe in the 1920s and 30s, but then we had the baby boom during World War II, the 1950s and 60s. Basically, more people got married and had children than ever before all at once. All the women who had delayed having children during the war were having children, and younger women were having children earlier. These combined to mean lots of babies born in the same period of time, but only slightly larger families. And this highlights another point. When we're talking about demographics, fertility isn't about an individual's chance of conceiving. Instead, it's a population metric. So when we talked about declining fertility, it doesn't necessarily mean that individual women are less able to have kids. It just means that they are having fewer kids for a whole variety of reasons. We talked about other factors which influenced the decision of whether or not to have children. And Lucy told us about some of the wider societal issues that can impact this decision. They include an expensive housing market, having less financial stability, for example due to short-term contracts, pandemic uncertainty, Brexit, and climate change. Never want to let Covid and Brexit hog all the limelight. Yeah, children are a financial burden. You are surprising absolutely zero parents out there, Naomi. Which means that in times of uncertainty, like during Covid and Brexit, and with climate change looming on the horizon, people are more likely to plan their pregnancies carefully. Alice also said that we're unlikely to go back to another baby boom. Another possible consequence of new reproductive technologies, which we didn't talk about earlier, is their ability to allow same-sex couples to have biological children. The possibility of queer reproduction will make fertility more equitable, providing it is made available to everyone, a big if. Maybe this will change who we think can and should take control of their own reproductive futures. Lucy mentioned ReproSoc, which is the Reproductive Sociology Group at Cambridge. This is a group of researchers looking at how reproductive technologies, like egg freezing, are influencing and influenced by culture and society. Dr. Robert Parlat, one of Lucy's colleagues in ReproSoc, found that young queer people in Britain are now more often imagining themselves having children, perhaps as a result of new technologies that make this possible. The Centre for Family Research is another group that Lucy mentioned. This is a multidisciplinary research centre in Cambridge that studies a variety of topics, including the impact of different family structures. For example, on the psychological well-being of children in families created by assisted reproductive technologies, such as IVF, donor insemination, egg donation and surrogacy. So, like I said, it sounds like the future has lots of fascinating, powerful and liberating reproductive technologies in store for us. Yes, but these new technologies will bring about their own ethical, legal and societal concerns and constraints, such as exploitation and accessibility, which we mentioned earlier. So it's probably better not to rush ahead too quickly without thinking through the implications of what science is making possible. And we ended by imagining what the future might have in store for reproduction on a wider scale. There was lots of optimism from our guests about the impact of the pandemic on gender equality in the home. Not only that, but also the potential for reproductive technologies to deliver a more equitable future for all sorts of people. Well, that really is the end. 
the end of this series, in fact. Stay tuned, though, for more from Mind Over Chatter HQ. Until then, please fill out our survey. You can find the link in the episode description to tell us what you think of the podcast. Be honest. And please make sure to leave us a review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. A good one, ideally. And as ever, please do spread the Mind Over Chatter word by telling... Just tell everyone. Huge thanks once again to our guests, Torsten Boroviak, Alice Reed, Lucy van der Weel, and to our two fantastic behind-the-scenes helpers this series, Annie Thwaite and Charlotte Zemmel. Music was by the extremely talented Carlo Ladd and artwork by the equally talented Alex Sadler. See you next time. Bye! Bye.